Live. Before we jump in to a study in Hebrews, we need to talk just a little bit briefly about background. And, and so uh, there are some things you need to know about the book of Hebrews. And the first is that we, we don't know the author of the book of Hebrews, which is kind of weird. We know the author of most of the books of the Bible. Uh, but Hebrews is one of those that we just can't nail it down. Uh, it was early. It was attributed to Paul. And it, des- it definitely has some, some thoughts of Paul in it. Uh, but when you look at the original Greek, it, it's, it's much more, uh, it, it's written in a higher style of language than Paul typically writes. And so we kind of question that sometimes. Uh, some people think that maybe it was written by Barnabas. And, and that's a great guess as well. Uh, some say Apollos. And there are some that say Luke. But here's the great thing about Hebrews. It doesn't matter for us who wrote it. And here's why. The people that it was written to knew who wrote it. They had a, they had a, a long-lasting relationship with the person that wrote it. They knew who wrote it. Okay? And, and, and the theology, the thoughts about God, and the doctrine taught within the book of Hebrews are so solid that for us, it really doesn't matter who wrote it. Of bigger importance to us is who received it. You see... See, the, the, the audience, the people group that received the book of Hebrews has a lot to do with us because originally the book of Hebrews was written to a group of, of Hellenistic Jews. Um, another way to say that is Grecian Jews. They, they were Christians, mind you, um, but they became Christians sometime after uh, Jesus's life and death and resurrection. These people never actually saw Jesus in person. They didn't, never heard Jesus in person. They're, they're kind of second generation believers. After Jesus ascended into heaven and the gospel went forth towards the ends of the earth, they uh, came to know about Jesus and they gave their lives to Jesus. The other thing you kind of need to know is, is when it was written, it was probably written sometime around 80. 70, uh, probably a little after that, and, and you'll see why we'll talk about that in a second. And, and the time in which it's written, Christians are being persecuted greatly. Christians are being put in jail, they're being put to death, um, they're being killed for their faith. And so these guys that this book is written to, they're really at a point that they don't know what to do and they don't know where to turn and they don't know what to believe. They've believed in Jesus, but that's not working out so well for most Christians. Uh, they come from a background of Judaism, but the temple has been destroyed. Um, they, they've lived amongst the culture of the Greeks uh, and the Romans with all their, their idols and all their philosophers and thoughts about God. And, and, and those things begin to weigh on them. There's so many voices that they're surrounded by, so many thoughts about God. What should they do? What should they believe? To whom should they look? And for the author of Hebrews, the answer is simple. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Don't go back to to Judaism. Don't return to religion. Don't buy into the myriad of of mythologies of the Greeks. Turn to Jesus. He's better than all that other stuff. And that's what we're going to focus on as well. And so if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to read verse 1 through 3 together this morning. It says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. At many times and in various ways, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, by his powerful word. And this morning, we're going to focus on that third verse. It's up on the screen. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Um, and, and, and here's our first lesson as we dive into Hebrews together this morning. I want you to understand that according to this text, Jesus is a better picture. Jesus is a better picture of God. 
That's what he is. Jesus is a better picture. These early Christian brothers and sisters were at a point of decision. Christians are being killed, and so they're at a point of decision. Should we continue or should we retreat? Is it worth it? Their instincts now are to go back to Judaism. But the temple has been destroyed, so where will they turn? They're surrounded by these Greeks and these Romans and all of the philosophy and the mythology. And everyone has their own beliefs about God and about life. And as Christian Christianity is becoming more and more difficult. These thoughts of the culture are weighing heavily on them and they're at a point of decision trying to figure out what will we do, where will we turn, who should we believe, and it's here that our our author says, I know what they're saying. And And I know what you're thinking. But I want you to understand that Jesus is better. He's a better representation of God. He's a better picture of God than the temple or, 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 or the system of Judaism. He's a better picture of God than all of the idols uh, that, that the Greeks and the Romans bow down to. He's a better picture of, uh, of God than, than the greatest philosophers would paint. Jesus is a better picture. And friends, that's a message that we desperately need to be reminded of today because you see, we're not very far removed from that culture. We are bombarded by religion by culture, by man's misguided thoughts about God, and like the recipients of the letter of Hebrew, we need to understand that Jesus is a better picture. So this morning, our aim is simple. We want to see Jesus. You see, Jesus shows us who God really is and what God really looks like. That's why we look to Jesus. Jesus shows us who God really is and what God really looks like. And this morning, what we're going to do because of that is we're just going to walk you through this truth so we can encounter it together. And we're going to look at some of the misgivings, some of the false philosophies, some of the wrong thoughts in our world about God. And and so I've got six of them for you. We're going to look at six wrong pictures of God. And we're going to do it very quickly. And we're going to show you that in each situation that Jesus is a much better picture. Okay. and so here's uh, here's the first. Here's the first wrong picture. Many in the world today believe that God is just a big, mean bully. God's just a big, mean bully. He's up there. He just pushes people around. He threatens them. He, he's always throwing his power around. It's all about what he wants to do. Now, if you want to understand these people's claims, you need to know what a bully really is. And so I've got some characteristics of a bully for you. I just found this on the Internet. It says that a bully, and these are the top three I found, lacks empathy for others. Okay? A bully needs to to control others. They have a, a need in their life to, to be able to control other people. And get this, the last one I thought was very helpful. A bully uses fear and force and intimidation to gain power over others. That's, that's, that's what a bully is. And so to the people that would say that God is a bully, I would respond in a couple of ways. First, I would just respond based on these characteristics. And I would say, okay, so, so you believe that God is a bully. Let's, let's start with number one. A bully lacks empathy for others. The Bible says that God became man and came in the flesh and that he lived here on this earth. And that he faced every temptation that we have faced, yet he lived perfectly so that his life could be a sacrifice to pay for your sins. I'm sorry, but God empathizes with us. Jesus is not a high priest that cannot empathize. He is not a high priest that doesn't know what we've been through, but he's been through it all, yet he's without sin. So I'll begin there and I'll continue through the list and I'll say, wait a second, need to control others. Wait a second. While God is is control of all things in the universe, uh, he, he, he has made us in his image. 
image and, and one of the greatest attributes that he has given us is the ability to love. It's one of his greatest attributes. But did you know that love cannot be forced, not true love? So God has given us the ability to choose. That doesn't sound like a bully now, does it? And I would say, you know, a bully uses fear, force and intimidation to gain power over others. You know, God's already got all the power. He has it all. There's no need to do that. And so I would start here with just how they declare what a bully is. I'd begin there, but then I would turn to the Bible. And let's just do that this morning. I want to look at Philippians chapter two with you. If you don't mind turning, we're going to be we're going to be turning around quite a turning uh, throughout the Bible quite a bit. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five. I'll read through 11. It says um, your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus. I just want you to I want you to see that Jesus shows us uh that he's not a bully, okay? Uh, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus shows us that though God is all powerful, Though God is all-powerful, he became a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death so that we could be forgiven. Does that sound like a bully to you? It does not. Jesus is a better picture. Okay? Let's look at another one. A lot of people in our world believe that, that God is just a raving, jealous lunatic. Right, that image is, is from Sleeping with the Enemy. That is a freaky movie, man. Don't watch that if you're by yourself. I'm just saying. That movie's the epitome of what so many people think about God. They believe that God is a control freak, that he always wants to know where you are. He doesn't want you talking to anyone else. He doesn't want you doing anything without telling him, right? That's the world's image of God, that, that he's some kind of jealous husband, or worse yet, that he's a jealous stalker. And what the world fails to understand is that there are actually two types of jealousy. There's a bad jealousy. There's a good jealousy. See, bad jealousy kind of looks like this. Bad jealousy is all about envy. It's about wanting something that you don't have in the movie in particular. Uh, you remember that the wife has, has left the husband and separated from him because he's, he's abusive, right? And, and so she's trying to live without him. He no longer has her and it's driving him crazy. That's a bad kind of jealousy. Bad jealousy is about unrequited love. Somebody has feelings for somebody that aren't returned and it drives them crazy. Okay? Bad jealousy is about paranoia. Oftentimes, people that suffer from this kind of jealousy, they won't allow anybody to, to leave the house. I've heard these horror stories. Won't, won't allow their wives to, to have a phone or to call anybody unless they're present in the room. That's bad jealousy. But friends, there's also a good jealousy and in good jealousy, it's called godly jealousy. It's from God. You see, a, a husband should be these things. A husband should be involved and protective of his wife. Next to Jesus, his wife is, is, is his greatest gift. 
He's to treat her as such, and he's to be involved in her life. He's to know the areas that she struggles in, and he's to try to stand in that gap for her. He's to wash her in the water of, of the word and to bathe her in prayer. Okay, he's that example. A, a, a good husband that has godly jealousy is proactive. He, he determines no other man will win my wife's affections. I will be the one that gets her flowers and writes her cards and takes her out on dates and reminds her that she is beautiful and well-loved and, and, and that she is respected and that I appreciate her. I'll do that on a regular basis. Good jealousy desires soul intimacy. Wants to know the other person in, in the greatest depths that they are. Wants to know everything about them. Isn't content with just sitting on the couch. Wants to know everything about them. And, and friends, that's a kind of jealousy when the Bible speaks of it. God has for us. And this is what I want you to understand briefly this morning, guys. God's jealousy is not a bad thing. In fact, God's jealousy shows us how much we're worth to him. Use this example a while back. If you could imagine a husband and a wife and the wife goes away at work and, and the husband is just completely cold to her at home and doesn't care about her, doesn't spend any time or that doesn't focus on her at all. And she goes off to work and imagine that there's some man there that, that begins to compliment her, begins to speak to her and then listen to her. And before she knows it, she's thinking about these, these all kinds of thoughts about this man. But then all of a sudden it clicks and she realizes that what she's doing wrong. So she runs home broken to her husband. She, she pours out her heart to him and, and confesses, I'm so sorry. I've been having these conversations. I never did anything. But but I, I realized that, that he was listening to me and, and I feel like you never will. And and, and and he was complimenting me and you never do. And, and we never talk anymore. I feel so distant from you. And she begins to weep and cry and say, please date me. Please love me. If you can imagine a husband that was completely unaffected by that. He did nothing. He changed nothing because of that. That husband at that moment would prove to his wife that she was of little value to him. Because he was not jealous for her. Jealousy proves that we are worth something to God. You say, how much am I worth to God? The Bible teaches us that, that God's jealousy, his love for you is so passionate that he pursues you in spite of who you are. And who are you? The Bible says, well, you're Gomer, to be honest. That's who, that's who we are. We're, we're Gomer, right? And I don't mean pile. Uh, Bible, Gomer was the wife of the prophet Hosea who left him and became a prostitute because she was enraged with her own lust of the flesh. God spoke to Hosea and said, uh, your, your wife is a portrait of my people. And you're going to go buy her back and you're going to redeem her and you're going to take her back into your own home and you're going to win her heart again. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is our Hosea. And, and that though we have prostituted ourselves out to the world, that literally Jesus is our Hosea and he has come to buy us back. And what was the price? Well, it was his life. And so you say, well, how much am I worth to God? And, and the Bible says time and time again that you are worth this much. It's who you are. To God, Jesus is, is a better picture. It's not that God is jealous. Jesus shows us that God is jealous for us. That's what Jesus shows us. He's a better picture, I tell you. Let's look at another one. Another wrong picture of the world says that God is distant and doesn't care. 
God's distant. God's out there somewhere. You know, he reigns over the universe and all things. But but he's too busy to have anything to do with us or the inner workings of our lives. He's, he's just too busy for all that stuff. And, and again, I'm just here to tell you that Jesus is a better picture than that. Open your Bibles. Turn with me to Matthew chapter one. Let's read this together. This is kind of a big deal. Uh, Matthew chapter one. I'm going to start in verse 18. You might know this chapter is the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name is Jesus, for he will be the Savior. His name is Emmanuel, because he is God with us. Distant, I think not. Jesus is a better picture. God is not distant. God is is with us. And and, and the truth of the Bible, the truth of Scripture is is this. God is not distant. God is is with us. God is a God who who comes down. This is what Jesus shows us, and it's what the Bible testifies to. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. It says that God had a habit of walking amongst Adam and Eve. When he created everything, and everything was right, and everything was good, God wasn't distant then. God came down and physically walked amongst his people. It says that God was walking with Adam and Eve. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He's calling out to them. This evidently was a habit of God. You turn to Matthew chapter 1, you see, see and by the way, in, in the garden, it wasn't up, it was down. The garden was here on earth. God came down to fellowship with his people. You look to Matthew 1, it's Emmanuel, God with us. God came down to be with his people. Read Revelation 21 and what the new heaven and the new earth looks like. And God is going to make everything right. And it says that the new Jerusalem is going to come down and God is going to come down. And he says that I will be their God and they will be my people. God is a God who comes down. God is not distant. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus shows us a better picture. God is not distant. God loves us and wants to be intimately involved with our lives. Number four, another wrong picture of God. Somehow God is just Santa Claus, right? You know all about Santa Claus. He's keeping a list and he's checking it twice. and He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. And there's some people that think that this is what God does. Basically, God is just somebody that balances uh, good and bad. And this is what he does. And this is how you get into heaven. As long as your good outweighs your bad, as long as you're not naughty, you're going to get what you want. This is the God of good works. But Jesus came to show us that nobody is good enough. That's what Jesus came to point out. He says, listen, God's not like Santa Claus. It's not that you can be good enough. Jesus came to say, listen, no one is good enough. He taught that the kingdom belonged to those that understood they were spiritually bankrupt, those that were broken and mourned over their sin, those that ached for God, those with pure hearts. He consistently taught against the self-righteous. 
He called the religious to the carpet. He told people that if they wanted to see God, they had to be perfect. Jesus made it clear that no one was good enough. That's why he came. Second Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're not good enough. Good won't get us there. The bar for heaven is not good. The bar for a relationship with God is not good. The bar for heaven, the bar for God is perfection. And Jesus is, he, he, he came so that we could be made, so that we could be declared perfect because of our faith in him. We're not good enough. And Jesus shows us that. He's a better picture than a picture of Santa Claus. He just is. Another one. Our world says that uh, God is some kind of a hippie love child, right? Somehow they've, they've read First uh, John 4, 8, that God is love, and they have allowed that one verse to change all of their thoughts about God. Because God is love, they declare that God will always do the loving thing. And a loving God can never send anyone to hell. And a loving God can never be angry at people. A loving God is just going to just do the best for everybody. And, and, and that's who God is. And the problem is this, that that's not the, the picture that Jesus paints for us. Jesus is love. Hear me this. Jesus, in fact, is God's love on display. That, 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 that's who he is. But Jesus, hear this, is purposeful love. Jesus, according to Scripture, God's love on display, came to seek and save sinners. That's why He came. He's love in action. He's a verb, right? And Jesus, this love in action, had a purpose, and it was to seek and save sinners. And while He loved them, He also called them out of sin. You see, the love of God doesn't look over sin. It doesn't. The love of God doesn't look past sin. Instead, the love of God looks to sin. And then he becomes a sacrifice for sin. And he calls us to repent because of who he is and what he's done. Jesus' first sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's his first sermon. Listen to what he says in Luke. He says this in Luke 5. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. Sinners to repentance. There is a very dangerous thought in our world today. And that thought is that God is just love. And that because he's love, that that he's going to overlook everything and everyone's going to be okay in the end. And friends, that's just a wrong picture. Jesus shows us that God is indeed love. That he loved us so much that he gave up his own life. But you have to give up yours too. The Bible teaches us that if you want to receive the love of God, you've got to repent. Okay? That means that you stop chasing you and you start chasing him. It means that you turn from you and you turn to him. Jesus shows us that. God is love. But love doesn't overlook sin. Love calls us to repent from sin. Turn from sin and turn to him. God is love, all right? The last picture I'll share with you today, last wrong picture our world has, they honestly think that God's just a big party pooper, right? You know what? God is is just a God with a bunch of rules. 
And he doesn't want us to have any fun. And, and you know what? That's who God is. And, and, and I, I don't want to be a part of God. You know, if I became a Christian, I, I'd have to stop drinking. I couldn't dance anymore, right? I mean, then he's going to make me go to Africa for crying out loud. And, and I, I don't want to do any of that. God is just a big party pooper. I would say a few things to you. If you've ever thought that one, I would say is the Bible doesn't really say any of that, right? Uh, I mean, it, it just doesn't. We need to be biblical. Jesus' first miracle, he was at a party and it involved alcohol. God bless you, Baptists, all right? It just did. Now, we know that Jesus drank. We know that he probably danced. Now, now here's the deal. But he never sinned, right? He never sinned. Not one time. Jesus was never tipsy. Je- Je- Jesus was never tipsy, right? Je- Jesus, uh, you know, he just wasn't that because he's the epitome of, of self-control. So here's the heart of this question. The, the heart of this question is really all the other stuff. What about, what about, what about sex? Uh, what, what about time? What, what about doing what I... It, it's all about doing what we want to do. And this is what the Bible says, Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads to death. See, the prodigal son was was a party goer. He was all about the party scene. In fact, he went to dad and said, hey, dad, I want my inheritance early. I'm going to go party. And he did. But guess what? He he partied hard. And when the party was over, he found himself staring at a bunch of pigs and wanting to eat the pods or the slop that they were eating. Somehow he came to his senses and he decided I'll return home and I'll just be a servant in my father's house. But something happened as he was on that road home. His father saw him from a long way off and he ran to him and he threw his arms around him. And he put his robe on him and his ring on his finger, right? And he had a barbecue, he had a party in his honor. And in that moment, the Bible says that the son knew what a real party finally was. Here's what Jesus shows us. God is not a party pooper. God is the ultimate party thrower. Jesus says, you trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go there now to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, surely I'm going to come back and take you to be with me where I am. The Bible says that that place involves a great party and a great feast that we couldn't even think or imagine. God's not a party pooper. He's the ultimate party thrower. And that's what Jesus shows us. That's why Jesus came. What a glorious day that'll be. Guys, in a world that bombards us with religion and culture and man's misguided thoughts about God, we've got to look to Jesus. We've got to see him because only when we see him will we ever see who God really is. So what do we do? What do we do if we're here and, and, and we've been confronted with the fact that Jesus is a better picture of God than all the things we have in our mind and our heart? What do we do? The first thing is I tell you to do what the author is calling us to do. Ready? First and foremost, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've got to return. Okay? The heart of this letter is don't leave Jesus. The, the, the heart of this letter is, is don't go back to religion. The heart of this letter is, is don't get caught up in the world's false philosophies about God. The heart of this letter is that Jesus is better. Stick with it. Stick with him. Continue to pursue him. He is better. And some of you here, I'm just going to be honest, you're weary. You kind of feel like you've been in the desert for a while. Guess what? Sometimes God's people have to wander around in the desert, but it's always for their own good. 
It's always for their own good so that they might be purified. I'm here to tell you, don't give up. Look to Jesus. Don't turn away. Don't go back to, to what well, I just felt like it was better when I just had a list of rules. I felt like it was better when 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 it was works based and what I could do. You know, there's a checklist. Friends, you may have felt like that was better. But the truth is, you're an enemy of God. Jesus is better. You can't earn God's favor. You can't. You can't. So what do you do? If you're a believer and you've wandered from that, that commitment to Christ, you, you recommit to Christ. You say, Jesus, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and I'm not going to turn around. I'm not going to sit in a point of decision. I'm going to pursue you with everything that I have. Jesus, you're better. So you return to it. Okay? If you're here and, and you're not a believer in Christ, then you take the re off. You just turn to him. You turn to him. You cry out to him. Say, Jesus, I know that you're better. Jesus, I, I, need, I need you in my life. I want you to, to, to have control over me. So how, how do I do that? It's that simple. It's what we just said. You just cry out to God. God, I give up. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. All right. This morning, I, I don't know what um, you came in here thinking about God. You'd be amazed how many Christians I meet. And I know the bulk of our early service people. Most of you are, are Christians and followers of Christ. You'd be amazed how many Christians I meet that honestly believe in some of those pictures we walk through. They still struggle. They still think that God is like Santa Claus and he's keeping some kind of record of rights and wrongs. They still don't feel like they're good enough. They still wonder whether or not they're going to see God in heaven. They still wonder about these things. Friends, you don't have to wonder because Jesus is better.